Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. One of my favourite books is called Inside the Nudge Unit. It's a book about a team inside 10 Downing Street, tasked with infusing behavioural science into government policy. Inspired by nudge theory, which advocates the use of soft influences in people's environment to alter their behaviour, they had a remit to try this in the UK. They measured the impact of changing a sentence in a tax letter, the amount of sugar tax on fizzy drinks, and the messages shown on the DVLA website to encourage you to sign up to the organ donation register. Now, such interventions may seem trivial, and in fact, scepticism was initially so significant that the nudge unit was told it would shut down if it didn't make back ten times its cost within the first two years. The team's still going. They've now completed 500 randomised control trials of behavioural interventions, one of which had 11 million participants. The impact of these seemingly minor nudges is unquestionable. I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to speak to the fascinating Hugo Harper, formerly Head of Health at the Nudge Unit and now a director there. He shares some of the biggest successes at the Nudge Unit, but also one of its failures and shares the key ingredients of a successful nudge. We really hope you get a lot from the interview. So thanks for joining us, uh, Hugo. Much appreciated. Um, First up, what is the Behavioural Insights team and and why are you nicknamed the Nudge Unit? So the Behavioural Insights team is now a social purpose company. So that means we do things that have a good social impact. So you can think about that as improving the amount of recycling people do, getting people to do more physical exercise, things that are sort of widely agreed to be good things. Uh, And we're a bit of a unique organisation because we used to be a team in the Cabinet Office Mm. of the UK government. And we've since spun out to allow us to grow a lot and look at different areas that might not be a priority for central government, but are very important. And so when I joined the team, there are about 12 of us, mm. and now there are about 170 across wow. five different countries. So it's grown a lot over the, over the six years. And one of the reasons for that is there seems to be a lot of appetite for the area. But to go, to go back to your point about the, why we call the Nudge Unit, the, the intellectual origins of the team stem from a book called Nudge. Yeah. It's written by a guy called Richard Thaler and a guy called Cass Sunstein. And uh, they had this idea that can you have softer influences on people's behavior? So can you set up things in their environment in the way you phrase things or the way services are offered to them that make it more likely for them to engage in the behaviour that's in their long-term interest? Uh, They talk about this as libertarian paternalism, sort of from a political philosophy side of things, Uh, but nudge is kind of the shorthand for it. And what are the vital ingredients of a successful nudge? Uh, That's a really interesting question, and I think it's it's quite dependent on the given context for it. So... The first thing you need to work out is how much of a conscious deliberation is the choice that people are engaging in. Mm. And that gives you an idea of the mental bandwidth that people are kind of giving to the choice. Mm. And if something's very automatic, very habitual, if people aren't thinking about it in a lot of detail, then you need to be really careful about what the environment's prompting you for. Mm. So I'll give you an example. If you think of the, a snack that you pick out of the cupboard, 
You yeah. know, you're really not thinking about it. You're just going into the kitchen, picking something out. What's at eye level is probably going to have a big impact. Oh, biscuits, terrible. Exactly. Um, whereas, you know, if you're if somebody's really considering their future career options, you know, they've worked out what the annual expected earnings is of everything. Let's yeah. say for sort of pro- um, professions, uh, the medical field. Yeah. Right. Which specialty should I choose? Or well, what are their hours? How are they uh, how are they remunerated? <laughs> what sort of what are the number of training posts? How quickly can I become a consultant? Yeah. People are really engaging it a lot more detail then you might look at different things in in those sorts of cases you might be looking at how you can better structure information to make the choice clearer so people don't kind of zone in on something that might seem like a really interesting important attribute but in their day-to-day life might not lead them to have a lot more utility the best principle for thinking about it though is how to make the choice as easy as possible for people Mm. Of the, you know, we, we have a framework called the EAST framework. So it stands for easy, attractive, social, and timely. But if you could just pick one, it's making it easy for people. And that's that's sort of what uh, Professor, Professor Richard Thaler says as well. Okay. And, and, and sort of in the health setting, what's your team's most famous nudge? So we did a, a, a lot of initial thinking around the sugar tax. Okay. Right? And so a lot of people would have heard of that. You know, the price of Coke's gone up. Mm. Uh, and initially, at the first sound of it, that doesn't sound like a nudge, right? You're messing around with financial incentives. That's kind of the opposite of a nudge, if you like. But there are lots of really important behavioral aspects to it that have led to reformulation that changes people's behavior, or at least the amount of sugar they uh, consume, by making it as easy as possible for them, which is just taking the sugar out of the drinks. That's on the sort of policy side of things. The most famous thing in terms of trial interventions, sort of results that Mm. we've done, that's probably our work on antimicrobial resistance. Mm. So that's some work that we did with Department of Health, Public Health England, and the CMO. And here we looked at whether this concept of social norms, so this idea that people like to do what their peers do, they like to be in line with their peers, if that could be applied to GP prescribing antibiotics. And what we found was that by telling GPs who were prescribing far more antibiotics than their peers Mm. after controlling for demographic characteristics of their sort of cohort. So they were really prescribing too many. It wasn't their population was sicker. Telling them that they were out of whack with their peers reduced their prescribing rates. So this was published in The Lancet, so, you know, sort of top-tier health journal. It was run as a fully national randomised control trial, so in terms of methodology, it doesn't really get better. Um, And also, it had some influential messengers in, you know, it's already bought in at the CMO level. The letter was signed by Sally. Mm. So you can can see sort of, it kind of ticks all the boxes. It's sort of a priority in terms of everyone cares about AMR a lot of the moment. It, the evaluation of it was very good, randomized control trial, gold standard, and the, the scale of it, it's already been scaled to a national level. So that's probably the, the most famous example in the health area specifically. And what were their headline figures for that uh, AMR, antimicrobial resistance sort of intervention? So this is an interesting one, because the percentage reduction that you're looking at for it doesn't sound very impressive. So as a result of the intervention, if all, when it's all scaled up, we see a 0.85% reduction, so that's just under 1% reduction, in England's total prescribing rate, which maybe doesn't sound like that much. When we're actually looking at the, the group we've intervened on, we see about a 3 to 4% reduction mm. in terms of their prescribing rates. But you really need the broader context for how difficult a thing this is to shift. Yeah. You know, you, you, a 50% reduction would be unheard of because 
most prescribing is good prescribing. Yeah. Right? You don't want to just stop giving anyone everyone antibiotics. <laughs> yeah. You can kind of think of it similarly to like labor market stats, where a couple of percentage change in employment is a big swing. Yeah. Right? And so one way of thinking about this was in terms of financial incentives being offered by uh, the department, there was around £23 million set aside to incentivize around a 1% reduction. So if the, the trial we were involved in involved sending out lots of letters, the total cost of that was maybe something like £7,000, and it produced a result that is comparable, sort of 85% of, a target that was deemed to be worth over £20 million. Wow, that's quite some return on investment. And, and I guess on the flip side of this, if you don't mind sharing, what, what would be your biggest failure at Nudge in terms of a project, and, and what, what can we all learn from it? Um, we had... One, one uh, study we ran uh, a while ago, we tried to include stopping smoking advice, so a service that you could access to try to uh, quit smoking, and we tried putting that information on pregnancy tests, and we tried that over, we put the, uh, the number on a couple of thousand pregnancy tests uh, in, a, in a supermarket, and we got about seven responses. <laughs> you know, it, re- it was really low. Right. It was. It was. Uh, it was not something that it seemed people weren't doing this. The the idea came, was an interesting one. The idea that you know maybe this is a, is a choice moment in your life. You just found out some new information. But we think you know in hindsight it was a, way too much information too early on in the process. Um, and so that that would be something where thought it was a good idea, but definitely didn't work. And that's fascinating. The the fact that hey, measuring and filing, finding out it's not successful is actually a way better result than implementing blindly, which, which is often the case people, people go after. And I kind of guess um, following on from that, having talked a little bit about the behavioural science approach, I just want to touch a little bit on your approach to actually measuring these effects because some of the listeners will, will probably be slightly sceptical of, of some of your the, the results you present. And I think it would be intriguing for them to hear the way in which you test your responses, because um, I know you use randomised control trials, and it'd be interesting to hear about how you use those to affect. Yeah, absolutely. So we are very keen on randomised control trials, and there's actually there's actually a slightly interesting history for that. So the reason we came so strong on them initially is because nobody believed what we did would have any impact, and so therefore it leads you to this gold <laughs> standard methodology. Yeah randomized control trial with objective routinely collected outcome data on behavior so for example like are people paying the taxes you know for a fact whether that's happened or not there's very good data on that and so if you're running a trial you then you've got a good idea of the the impact that your intervention's having and that that was sort of in the very early days of the team and now we're arguing for the exact same thing we're still saying randomized control trials are incredibly important you still want to evaluate everything that you do but we're sometimes arguing it for a different reason now people are interested in the approach and lots of the time they say, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. You know, just tell me what will work and I'll just implement that. Yeah. And human behaviour is really complex. So, you know, we, we think we've got a good idea of what works, but you need to be really humble about it. Mm. Often it's hard to predict. You know, you don't always know whether something's going to work or not. And with that in mind, it, it really pays to, to evaluate it. And one of, the, one of the things that we always look for in, in an evaluation is getting as close to the behavior or outcome that you really care about as possible. Mm. And so that means, you know, if you if you care about obesity, you ideally want people's BMI. You know, mm. if you care about people paying the tax, you want to, want to see the tax being paid. If you pair, care about energy sustainability, you want their electricity bills, their usage to reduce. 
What you don't want to trust is people saying they're eating healthier or yeah. telling you that they're not using enough energy or promising that they'll definitely pay their tax in a month's time. Uh, there's, there's something called an intention action gap, which means it's a sort of a fancy way of saying what people say they will do doesn't always line up with what they will do. Yeah. Uh, and this is particularly difficult for virtuous behaviours. Mm. So things that people know are good things. So you know, if, if, I, if I tell you, like, if I, I'm asking you, do, do you eat lots of fruit and vegetables? You know that's a good thing, right? So you, yeah. you, there's a social desirability for you to tell me yes. And because we're, we're always working on these projects that are socially impactful, that are for the social good, often our outcome measures are also viewed as very positive things, people, things that people would potentially exaggerate. Um, and so that's why we always use behavioral sort of hard data where possible and try not to rely on sort of self-report data or, or you know, things of people, what they say they'll do. And how many sort of RCTs have, have you run and, and what, what sort of scale are we, are we talking? Yeah, so uh, we've so gone live. We're over 500 now. So, in how many years? Uh, about seven, eight years. Okay, that's... So that's, uh, that's, that's all of them that have been live. Now, some of them are reasonably small, right? Some mm. of them might be changing the subject line of the, the email that uh, the Department of Business sends out for some vouchers. Some of them are much larger. So our largest trial to date is a sample size of 11 million people. And that was run with the, in Indonesia. That was run on sort of tax, tax office in Indonesia. Our largest trial in the UK is uh, 1,085,000. Uh, and that's a trial. That was actually one of the first trials I did uh, on organ donation and prompting people when they're either getting new car insurance or signing up for their uh, license in the first place. Okay, and then following on from that, uh, in terms of using behavioural science for public health, where do you think is the biggest gain to be made using behavioural science to reduce UK morbidity and mortality? Yeah, so I think there are, there are two, two clear areas. Yeah. One is obesity and the other is tobacco. Okay. Uh, so obesity is perhaps the more obvious one. How can you set up people's environments so they're designed to encourage healthier choices? So how can you know? Can you've, we've, you might have seen some things recently in the media about a consultation to stop junk food advertising pre nine pm. Mm, how can you yeah. sort of reduce the cues of of eating? Now eating behaviour is very automatic. It's something you really don't think about a lot. Yeah. And so it's also very habitual. So just telling people the information once is unlikely to change their behaviour every day for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Right? And it's also very frequent. Right? Are you supposed to really consider the healthiness of every meal? You know, ca- real calorie counting is quite effortful. So instead, what can you do to improve the choice environment that people are given? And a really important part of that is reformulation and portion size initiatives. And, and why that's interesting is because things like slightly reducing the sugar in your Fanta, mm. people don't perceive the difference in that. So your experiential pleasure is no worse, but it's better for your health. Yeah. So this is, this is sort of the ultimate win. Can you get something that doesn't feel like a loss for an individual in any way, but makes an improvement for their health? That's kind of that's ideally what we're looking for here. So the panacea is an effortless health intervention, I guess. So the kind of the the, the kind of ironic thing is, I, I work in behaviour change, and sometimes the policies I'm advocating for involve no change in consumer behaviour, right? Because that's the easiest thing. Yeah. If the Fanta that you bought last week now contains less sugar, and you buy it again, your behaviour is the same. I haven't had to change your behaviour. I haven't had to change your habits. The the other element is in tobacco. So a, a really really powerful behavioural factor is this idea of substitution this idea of telling people not to do something and just telling them to stop is very difficult 
Whereas telling people, don't do X, do Y, that might be a little bit better. And we think e-cigarettes are a really powerful potential substitute for harm reduction. So if you can move current smokers to e-cigarettes, latest Public Health England estimates are that e-cigarettes are 95% safer than tobacco cigarettes. So in theory, if you could get, you know, if you get everyone onto the e-cigarette, so, you know, yes, still something that looks like smoke is coming out of their mouth, mm. but it feels a lot more similar, right? It's again, it's a point of subjective well-being, yeah. subjective pleasure, how much people are willing to stick to it. And I think that's, so tobacco is where a lot of kind of the qualities are lost, mm. but e-cigarettes present a really, a really good alternative uh, to the sort of traditional, just, you know, just quit or nicotine replacement therapy. It doesn't really matter if people keep smoking the e-cigarette for many, many years. That's kind of okay. Um, And actually, more recently in this, there's a study out maybe a month ago or something, where they actually trialled e-cigarettes versus nicotine replacement therapy Mm. in NHS stop smoking services. And they saw the abstinence rates after a year as measured by a carbon monoxide test. So really good objective behavioural outcome measure. Yeah, that uh, the abstinence rates were almost double in the e-cigarette group. So at, off the top of my head, it was about 18% versus about 9%. So that's a big yeah, difference. significant. Yeah. Right? And so, again, what seems like a subtle change, just giving people an e-cigarette instead of, you know, a nicotine sort of, uh, you know, either the gum or the patches yeah. or whatever people are using. Um, so, again, that feels like something that would be easy to implement in the system, would have a really big return on investment in terms of healthy life years. And just uh, drawing to a, to a close, I guess, before we come on to the quick fire five, I'd be really intrigued... In your observations of working with lots of people, what do you think is the most common behavioural science error that people make daily? Uh, And what one hack could our listeners kind of take away to address this if this applies to them? The main error is people think this is stuff that is other people's problem, but not mine. You know, this is something that other people, this is a mistake other people would make, but I wouldn't make that mistake. And so, you know, I've been thinking about this sort of stuff for the best part of a decade now. And I am just as much of a sucker for a buy one, get one free offer. You know, all of those things. (laughs) If something is visibly in front of me, I've got a bowl of popcorn in front of me, I'm going to be eating it. And so I think the the hack would be is not assuming that, not sort of unnecessarily forcing yourself to exert willpower. Can you just set your environment up so your choices are easier to begin with? So really simple versions of that in sort of food would be keeping snacks out of eye level, out of reach, those sorts of things. Yeah. To just make it so it's, you don't have to every time open the cupboard and decide, no, I'm not going to have the biscuits this time. Like, why put yourself under that sort of pressure? I've got a lot to learn on that one, I think. So just to end the podcast now, uh, we always end with five quick fire questions, which you're only allowed to answer with a word or sentence. So... Uh, first up, if you could have a life motto tattooed on your forehead for everyone to see, what would it be? Uh, be happy but never satisfied. Oh, I like it. Um, do you use nudge theory in your social life or is it strictly kept to work? Uh, personal life, not social life so much. Okay. And what's the worst bit of advice commonly touted in, in behavioural science or economics? We need to get people to think about it more. Okay, yeah. Um, and what's your favorite nudging ingredient of the EAST framework that you outlined? So easy, attractive, social, or timely? M- making things easy, definitely okay. the most important. 
And then finally, what's the key resource, like a blog, a website, book, or other podcast you'd suggest for anyone wanting to learn more about nudging and behavioral science? Uh, best book, in my opinion, is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Okay. And that's, that's most comprehensive. If you want to know specifically about the Nudge Unit, though, there's Inside the Nudge Unit, which our CEO and founder, David Halpin, wrote. Brilliant. And, and I've read that and can personally vouch to the listeners, and that's well worth your time reading. Well, thanks so much, Hugo, for, for taking the time to, to chat to, to me today. Uh, and to our listeners, keep an eye out on the Twitter, at Podcast Medicine, for links to articles and resources related to what we've discussed. And don't forget to reflect on the contents of the podcast for your CPD.